Good afternoon. My name is Jim Mackesy, and I'm one of the staff organizers for the 1800 Strong Graduate Employees Organization, AFT. Give it up. AFT Local 3550. Welcome to what I know will be a fascinating talk by Professor Chomsky regarding the corporatization of the university. I'd like to thank our sister union, the Lecturer's Employee Organization, and the Michigan Conference of the American Association of University Professors for sponsoring tonight's, today's event. And I'd also like to thank the numerous organizations that have co-sponsored. We'll start with a 45-minute lecture by Professor Chomsky, and then we'll move into a 45-minute question and answer session. To ask questions, please line up at the two microphones set up over there. Be aware that we'll be posting uh, a video of today's event on GEO's website. So if you ask a question, it will be heard by thousands who will eventually watch the video. <laughs> now would be an excellent time to turn off your cell phones. And please, no flash photography during the lecture. If you appreciate today's event, please consider making a donation to the Carol Chomsky Memorial Fund. You can make a donation to the fund from GEO's website, which is umgeo.org. So without further ado, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone beyond and between, please welcome Professor Noam Chomsky. Well, I'd like to, uh, as was just announced, uh, talk about uh, corporatization of the universities and the kind of linked quest, a matter of uh, resort to cheap labor without rights, what are called graduate students. Uh, it's, uh, it, but in talking about this, I think it's important to uh, keep in mind the broader context, and I'd like to talk in part about that. Uh, so a good example is the jobs report that just came out a couple days ago. It reported very limited growth, but more interestingly was the nature of the growth. Uh, half the jobs uh, were restaurants, retail, and temps. The, that's the lowest paying jobs, the ones with few benefits and little security. That was a report by Associated Press quoted. It said, the number of temps has jumped more than 50% since the recession ended four years ago, now 2.7 million. That's the most on government records since there are records. In no other sector has hiring come close. If you read the reports in the press, you would have seen that average wages rose, which sounds good until you look. It was entirely for what they call supervisory workers. That means managers of one kind or another entirely. Well, all of this is just another reflection of uh, a general assault on the population, a neoliberal assault on the population in the past generation. It's taken different forms, gone on throughout the world, different forms in different places, and it's been harmful almost everywhere. Now, there are countries that resisted the assault, uh, East Asia, and they've done reasonably well. Uh, there were others who followed the orders. Uh, those who followed the orders most severely 
most uh, obediently were uh, Latin America and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and they suffered very severely. Uh, actually, in the past decade in South America, something quite dramatic happened. If you happen to read the New York Times this morning, you noticed a column which said that uh, countries in Latin America are, many of them are committed to uh, offending the United States. That's a New York Times version of the fact that, uh, that they've essentially done something of real, really historic significance, which is worth thinking about. In the past decade, for the first time in 500 years, literally, since the conquistadors, first time the South American countries and some of the others have liberated themselves from Western control. That's mostly U.S. control in the last century. Now, that's significant. And uh, they've even become to t began to, beginning to come to terms with uh, the grotesque internal problems that were the legacy of imperial domination. Plenty of problems remain. You can see that in Brazil now. But there's been pretty spectacular uh, uh, achievements. It's what they're complaining about in the Times today. Uh, in Africa, uh, the effect has been horrendous. A lot of it doesn't get reported. You have to look to find out what's going on. But take, say, uh, Rwanda. As you all know, there was a major horror story there recently, 1994. Uh, there's a background. The background was the uh, World Bank IMF programs of so-called structural adjustment, neoliberal programs in Rwanda in the 1980s. Like everywhere, they severely harmed the economy. They exacerbated uh, ethnic Hutu-Tutsi uh, tensions and conflicts. That's a major factor in the horrors that took place a couple of years later. Actually, there's a similar background in Yugoslavia. World Bank IMF programs of the 1980s uh, had the same effects, had a big impact on the atrocities that followed, tends to happen. Uh, the uprisings in North Africa, what we call the Arab Spring, uh, those are in significant measure protests against the uh, neoliberal regime that was imposed by the World Bank, the IMF, U.S. Treasury, and it had its usual consequences. Economies very highly praised by the international institutions, along with an increase in repression, uh, corruption, uh, concentration of wealth, and uh, suffering among the general population. If that sounds familiar, it is. That's the impact everywhere. And the current turmoil in Egypt is motivated in substantial part by the fact that the uh, Muslim Brotherhood government that took over continued with the same policies, with the same consequences. Now, right now, today in Europe, uh, they're in the grips of uh, their own version of this uh, austerity in the course of recession, uh, which even the IMF now recognizes is self-destructive and ought to be ended, but it continues. And there's a consequence, which may be the reason, but at least it's a consequence. It was described pretty honestly by the uh, president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, in an interview in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he pointed out that uh, thanks to these policies, uh, the social contract is obsolete. 
the welfare state is collapsing and the country's subjected to it. Now, that's one of the great contributions of contemporary Europe, modern Europe, and it's going down the drain under these policies. Well, in the United States, similar policies have been pursued in the same period since roughly the 80s, a little earlier, uh, and they've had uh, consequences that you know. One of the major ones is financialization of the economy. Financial institutions have changed in character dramatically and grown huge. Uh, it goes along with shifting of production abroad, uh, destruction of unions that protect the rights of working people, uh, stagnation or worse for the majority of the population, extraordinary concentration of wealth in very narrow sectors, which happen to be mostly financial institutions. And these, uh, quote, the most respected financial commentator in the English-speaking world, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times, he calls the modern financial institutions a larva that's eating out the productive economy from within the way a spider eats away its host. I'm quoting from a conservative leading financial correspondent, not some lefty <laughs> radical. <laughs> Uh, they have stronger things to say. Uh, and there's a parallel process right through the period. Cost of elections has skyrocketed, and along with that, formal democracy has eroded uh, so severely that literally 70% uh, of the population is essentially disenfranchised, uh, lower 70% on the income scale. Uh, their opinions have no effect on policy. Uh, uh, influence increases slowly as wealth increases. You get to the top fraction of 1%. They pretty much get what they want. Uh, these results are established pretty well and good research in uh, professional academic uh, political science, but uh, we're going to be saved from that. Uh, this, these are such a dangerous threat to order that funding for them has been cut by uh, the House Republicans. That's part of the general Republican attack on anything that might harm their constituency, extreme wealth and corporate power. It's taking pretty remarkable forms. You've seen some here. Well, in the past, the United States was often um, kind of sardonically described as a one-party state, a business party with two factions. Democrats and Republicans. And that's not true any longer. Uh, it's still a one-party state, business party, but it only has one faction, uh, moderate Republicans. Uh, they're now called Democrats. Uh, but there's, there's, they are, in fact, pretty much what moderate Republicans used to be. Uh, there still is a party called the Republican Party, but it long ago abandoned any pretense of being a normal parliamentary party. It's in lockstep service to the rich and the corporate sector. It has a catechism that everyone has to repeat religiously. And that's not gone unnoticed. Again, I'll just quote from the, in this case, from the far right, distinguished conservative commentator Norman Ornstein describes today's Republican Party as, in his words, a radical insurgency, ideologically extreme, scornful of facts and compromise, dismissive of political opposition, 
or the parliamentary process and a very serious danger to the society. Now, that's from the far right and a respected commentator. Uh, I don't know if, how many of you can bear to read David Brooks in the New York Times, but <laughs> if you manage, you might have suffered through an article last week in which he explained that Egyptians lack what he called the mental ingredients for democracy. And for people like that, he said, elections are not a good thing when they lead to the elevation of people whose substantive beliefs fall outside the democratic orbit, like his Republican Party, for example. <laughs> uh, although he uh, ignored his strongest argument, uh, probably because he didn't know it, because it isn't reported in the free press. Uh, but uh, the strongest argument that Egyptians lack the mental ingredients for democracy is their attitudes, which aren't reported. Uh, overwhelmingly, they regard the United States as the major threat they face. And though they don't like Iran, like almost everyone outside the United States and its uh, clients, they don't regard Iran as much of a threat. And uh, that's the fundamental reason why the United States and its allies cannot tolerate democracy in Egypt and will do anything they can to block it. If that is by democracy, we mean a system in which public attitudes somehow affect policy. Well, the drift of both political parties to the right, the Republicans by now off the spectrum of traditional politics, now that's an aspect of the neoliberal assault. It's turning the United States into a, a plutocracy, not anything resembling a democracy, or maybe a borrow Jim Hightower's term, a radical kleptocracy. It's not, not unreasonable. Well, that's just a rough sketch. But you've got to cut corners. But I think it's pretty generally accurate. And there's plenty of resistance around the world here, too. But it's going to be a hard, long struggle to overcome the damage of the past generation and to move on to a much more just society. It's not impossible. It's not going to be easy. Well, corporatization of the university and reliance on cheap labor falls into this framework. Uh, but there's more background that I think ought to be considered, too. Uh, the history of uh, mass public education in the United States from the 19th century. In the 19th century, as you know, the country was undergoing uh, enormous social changes. At the time, the, it's mostly an agricultural population. It was being driven into the industrial system. Uh, working people didn't like it. They bitterly condemned the industrial system because uh, it deprived them of their rights as free men and women. And incidentally, not least women. That included those called factory girls, young women from the farms who were being forced into the textile mills. Uh, there was quite a lively press at the time, most free press in the history of the United States, vigorous free press. Uh, a lot of it was written by working people. Um, this is mostly Eastern Massachusetts then. Uh, Irish artisans from Boston, factory girls from the farms. Uh, it was a, and in fact, the culture generally, the working class culture was alive and flourishing, not just the press. There's a great book about it by uh, Jonathan Rose it's called The Intellectual Life of the British Working Class. It's a monumental study 
of um, the reading habits of working people in the 19th century. I'll quote him, he contrasts the passionate pursuit of knowledge by proletarian autodidacts with the pervasive Philistinism of the British aristocracy. And pretty much the same was true in working class towns here, Eastern Massachusetts, so an Irish blacksmith might, if he had the money, would hire a boy to read to him while he's working. Or uh, on the farms, the factory girls, young women driven to the farm, into the mills, uh, they were reading the uh, contemporary literature of the day, what we read as classics. Uh, that's, uh, um, and they condemned, as I said, they condemned the industrial system uh, for depriving them of their, not only their freedom, but also their culture. And this went on for a long time. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the 1930s. A uh, large part of my family came from the unemployed working class, and uh, many had barely gone to school, but they were part of the high culture of the day. Uh, their conversations were about the latest free Shakespeare play or Budapest String Quartet concert or various tendencies in psychoanalysis, every imaginable political movement. Uh, there was also in the 30s a lively worker education systems based in the unions, uh, leading uh, scientists and mathematicians, mostly from the Communist Party, we're not allowed to say that, but it's true, were uh, directly involved. Uh, a lot of this has been lost under the relentless assault of the masters, uh, but it can be recovered. No reason to think it's lost forever. People haven't changed their genes. Uh, going back to the labor press of the early Industrial Revolution, it took very strong positions on issues that uh, are highly relevant today. They should have a resonance. So, for example, they took for granted, as they put it, that those who work in the mills should own them. Uh, they condemned wage labor, which they regarded as virtually identical to slavery different from slavery only in that it was temporary principle. Now, that was such a popular position that it was a platform of the Republican Party at the time. Uh, the, uh, it was also the main theme of the, not today's Republican Party, it was a main theme of the huge uh, organized labor movement that was taking shape, the Knights of Labor, uh, which was uh, moving towards establishing links with the most important popular democratic movement in the country's history. Uh, it was then called the Farmers Alliance, later became the populist movement. It originated in Texas, believe it or not, with radical farmers spread over most of the country, agricultural country then. Uh, they were forming collective enterprises, uh, banks, their own banks, break out of the control of the Eastern financial system, uh, marketing cooperatives, a lot more. Um, these are movements that could have driven the country towards much more authentic democracy, but they were destroyed largely by violence. We have a very violent labor history, much worse than other industrial democracies. Uh, but it's interesting that some similar developments are taking place today in parts of the old uh, Rust Belt, and I think that's pretty important for the future. Well, the prime con uh, target of condemnation in the labor press 
was what they called the new spirit of the age, gain wealth forgetting all but self. Uh, people, no efforts have been spared since that time to drive the new spirit of the age into people's heads. You're victims too if you went to school and lived in this country. Uh, people have to come to understand or at least believe that suffering and deprivation result from the failure of individuals and not from the nature of the socioeconomic system. Uh, there are huge industries devoted to this task. Uh, public relations industry is one, in fact, the educational system is another. And I think it's in this context that you have to begin this broad context. You have to begin to inquire into what's happening to the educational system, the universities and also K-12. to uh, Public education, public mass education was a great achievement in the 19th century. And the U.S. was in fact a pioneer. But it had complex characteristics. It was rooted in the very sharp uh, class conflicts of the day. Again, the main problem was to try to induce or compel independent farmers uh, who valued their freedom and their culture to induce them to give it all up, give up their independence, submit themselves to industrial discipline, and uh, what they regarded as slavery, wage slavery, they called it. And that didn't pass without notice either. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, he observed that the political leaders of his day were calling for uh, mass popular education. And when he inquired among them why, he concluded that their motivation was fear. And what they said was the country is filling up with millions of voters uh, and the, we have to, quoting, educate them to keep them from our throats. Uh, in other words, educate them the right way for passivity and obedience and get them to accept the, the belief that their fate is right and just and that it conforms to the new spirit of the age. You've got to keep their perspectives narrow. You've got to keep their understanding limited, uh, discourage free and independent thought, uh, instill docility, obedience, and crucially, the new spirit of the age. Uh, this, this is a common theme from uh, early 19th century up until today. It's so inhuman and savage that it elicits constant resistance, and there have been plenty of victories. Uh, the 1930s were major victories, 1960s, more victories. Uh, but the systems of power don't uh, kind of walk away politely. Uh, they resist. And that's a large part of the force beyond the, behind the uh, neoliberal assault that's been taking place uh, in the wake of the 1960s. Well, and one part of it is the assault on education. Uh, the 1960s, mainly, uh, youth activism had a civil, major civilizing effect on the country. It was very real and it was very terrifying to elite opinion. That's why the 1960s are commonly called the time of troubles, and too much of a civilizing effect. In particular, the educational system wasn't carrying out its function of educating them to keep them from our throats, borrowing Emerson's phrase. On the contrary, a lot of the population was leaping at the throats of 
established power and privilege and authority. That's not tolerable. And there was an elite reaction, and it was pretty common right across the spectrum. It's well illustrated by some of the important documents of the day, which I'd urge you to read if you haven't done so. Just take one on the right and one on what's called the left. Uh, on the right, a good illustration is a very influential memorandum written for the main business lobbies, Chamber of Commerce, by uh, Lewis Powell. He was a corporate lawyer who worked for the tobacco industry. Uh, he was later appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon. That's one end of the spectrum. At the other end, it's a pretty narrow spectrum, uh, there was a very important study by uh, the Trilateral Commission. That's liberal internationalists, people who staffed the Carter administration, for example. A liberal internationalists from the three major industrial, state capitalist industrial uh, countries, Europe, US, and Japan. And both of these documents provide quite a good insight into why the assault targets the educational system. So let me start with the Powell Memorandum. Its title is The Attack on the American Free Enterprise System. Uh, it's interesting to read, not only because of its content, but also for the uh, style, kind of paranoid tone. And it's pretty standard for business literature. Uh, people who think they have the right to rule uh, go berserk if anything is lost, literally. If something fails, uh, just a little bit falls out of control, some little piece, uh, it means the world's coming to an end. Uh, kind of like a three-year-old who's got a toy taken away. Uh, it's not a joke. Uh, and the rhetoric tends to be quite inflated and paranoid. Uh, so Powell identifies two leading criminals who are destroying the American free enterprise system. One was Ralph Nader, who's pursuing consumer, uh, consumer safety campaigns, like you know, wear seat belts and so on. Uh, the other was Herbert Marcuse. He was preaching Marxism to the new leftists who are on the rampage everywhere. Uh, they were their naive victims, he says, or dominate the universities and the schools. They control television and all the other media. They control the educated community, and they run the, virtually the entire government. If that sounds exaggerated, I urge you to read it for yourself. It's not. And he drew the obvious conclusion. I'll read it. The campuses from which much of this criticism emanates are supported by tax funds generated largely from American business. Contributions from capital funds controlled or generated by American business. The boards of trustees at universities are overwhelmingly composed of leaders of the business system, and most of the media, including the national TV systems, are owned and, he says, theoretically controlled by corporations, which depend on profits and the enterprise system on which they survive. That's the reality. So therefore, he says, the oppressed business people who've essentially lost all influence, should organize and defend themselves instead of just idly sitting by while their fundamental freedoms are destroyed 
by the Marxist onslaught from the media, the government, and the universities. Now, those are the concerns that were elicited by 60s activism uh, at the right end of the mainstream spectrum. But uh, much more interesting, I think, are the, is the reaction from the opposite end, uh, what's called the left, the liberal internationalists, kind of literally the people who filled 100, almost 100% of the posts in the Carter administration. Now, they had an important study, came out in the mid-70s, called the crisis of democracy. And uh, the crisis that they perceived was that there was too much democracy. They said the system used to work fine when most of the population was passive, uh, apathetic, and obedient. Uh, there was an American rapporteur, a professor at Harvard, Samuel Huntington, and he looked back to the, with a lot of nostalgia, to the good old days when, as he put it, uh, Truman had been able to govern the country with the cooperation of a relatively small number of Wall Street lawyers and bankers so that democracy flourished, uh, there was no crisis. Uh, but in the 1960s, something dangerous happened. And what happened was that special interest groups began to try to enter the political arena to press for their demands. So who were the special interest groups? Well, women, minorities, young people, elderly people, farmers, uh, workers, in short, the whole population, almost. Uh, and they're supposed to sit obediently while the what's called the intelligent minority runs things in the interests of everyone. Now, that's incidentally liberal democratic theory. If you think I'm exaggerating, take a look at it. Uh, there's one group that's omitted in their review of the special interests. Uh, that's uh, the corporate sector. They don't mention them. And there's a good reason for that. They're not a special interest. They're the national interest. So therefore, they must maintain their control, control participation. And their uh, control of what we call democracy is right, proper, doesn't mention any concern or um, even mentioned in, the, uh, in this account. Well, we've just... Uh, commemorated independence a couple of days ago, so we ought to bear in mind that all of this is pretty traditional. It goes right back to the founding of the country. It's not what they teach you in eighth grade or probably college, but it's what you can find out if you look. Uh, there was the major main framer, as you know, was James Madison, and he explained in the Constitutional Convention that power, quoting him, should reside in the hands of the wealth of the nation the most responsible set of men, those who have sympathy for property owners and their rights, and who understand that a major function of government is to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. The government must keep to the principle that was enunciated by the President of the Constitutional Congress, first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, uh, who explained that uh, those who own the country ought to govern it. Uh, that's what the country was founded on. And the effort to preserve that continues to the present day, now in the form that I've talking about. Well, one leading concern of the trilateral scholars uh, was the failure of the institutions responsible 
for the indoctrination of the young. Actually, that's their words, not mine. They're concerned about the indoctrination of the young and the institutions responsible. That's the schools, the universities, churches. They were simply not indoctrinating the young properly. And that's why we have these uprisings in the streets and the efforts of the special interests uh, to press their demands in the political arena. So as a natural conclusion, the trilateral scholars urged more effective indoctrination and in general what they called more moderation in democracy. That's the left end. The former is the right end, if you can distinguish essentially the same concepts. And the uh, current assault on the educational system ever since then, it really takes off within these bounds. And it takes many different forms. Uh, one form, which you're all familiar with, is the shifting of funding to students. So tuitions have risen dramatically during this period. And it's pretty hard to imagine that there's any economic reason for that. So take, say, we happen to be right next door to Mexico. It's a poor country. It has a higher education system, which is quite high quality. And it's free. Higher education's free. High quality. Uh, there was an attempt by the state uh, some years ago, 20 years ago, to impose a slight tuition. It was beaten back by a national student strike. That's something you might think about. It had a lot of, had a lot of popular support. In fact, uh, uh, to this day, or at least a year ago when I was there, at UNAM, the main public university, uh, the main administration building is still occupied by students. It's used as a community center, an activist center. Uh, something similar just happened in Quebec uh, very recently. It led, in fact, with a lot of popular support, student strike to over tuition, attempt to raise tuition. A lot of popular support uh, led to the overthrow of the provincial government in favor of a more progressive alternative. Uh, in Mexico City, uh, there was a leftist mayor recently, Lopez Obrador. Uh, he opened a city university. It's not only free, but it has open admissions with support for students who didn't meet the conditions. Actually, I visited there, observed it a little. It looked pretty impressive. And it's not just poor countries. It's also rich countries. So the, uh, the country with the highest educational outcomes in the world regularly is Finland. Education's free. Germany, free. Others, free. Uh, France is a very interesting case. Uh, their system is regularly condemned here because of the high rates of youth unemployment. And that was looked at recently by a very good economist, Dean Baker, and he pointed out that the high youth unemployment traces to the fact that there are many fewer young people in the labor market. And the reason for that is that they're in school and education is subsidized by the state. Those are the rich countries. Mexico's a poor country. Uh, and in fact, the same was true in the United States when it was a much poorer country. Pretty much true. 1950s, country was much poorer than it is today. Uh, and there was a GI Bill which provided free education, uh, university education, to a huge number of people who never would have made it to the colleges otherwise. It was a great benefit to them. It was a tremendous boost to the economy and to the society. 
and the private colleges were much cheaper than today. I went to a private college, it was $100, and you could easily get a scholarship. Well, by now, in, uh, in most states, uh, tuition covers uh, more than half the costs in state colleges, uh, sometimes far more, up to 80% or more. Uh, pretty soon, only the community colleges will be publicly financed as current tendencies go, and they're under attack. And analysts seem to agree. Uh, one of them writes that the era of affordable four-year public universities heavily subsidized by the state may be over. Uh, meanwhile, in private universities, costs are going out of sight. Uh, students find themselves in a debt trap. It's now, I'm sure you know, past a trillion dollars, more than the total of credit card debt. And Congress just helped by failing to uh, act on the debt issue before the July 1st deadline. In fact, again, yesterday, they failed to do anything about it. So uh, uh, that means that uh, millions of students are soon going to have to pay double the previous interest rate uh, for government loans. And student debt is exceptionally punishing. It's designed that way. Uh, most debt you can get out of by declaring bankruptcy, but not student debt. There's no expiration date. That means that uh, collectors can garnish your wages uh, uh, to the end. Uh, um, uh, they can garnish unemployment benefits, uh, Social Security, uh, for the rest of your life. And that's a very effective trap for students. It's an effective alternative to indoctrination. It uh, cuts down on options, uh, which are limited anyway when employment opportunities are limited under the neoliberal policies. And the basic idea was explained by one of the trustees of the New York State University system. He said, there's been a shift from the belief that we as a nation benefit from higher education to a belief that it is the people who are receiving the education who primarily benefit, so they should foot the bill. He didn't say whose belief it was, but it's the new spirit of the age from the 19th century raising its head again. Well, as usual, the primary victims are the most vulnerable. In this respect, it's quite similar to subprime lending, the mortgage catastrophe. Uh, educational analog in co is uh, colleges run for profit. They seem to offer opportunities. Uh, but it turns out that almost all students, uh, mostly from the less privileged classes, are plunged into debt uh, at a very high default rate. And the kind of education they get is pretty thin. A successful education, as all of you know, involves face-to-face -face contact among students, too. You learn a lot by cooperation with your peers. That's something to think about in connection with the uh, uh, MOOCs hysteria that's underway now. Maybe make a lot of money for the universities, but very questionable what kind of education it's giving. Well, a parallel development is the corporatization of the universities. So during this neoliberal period, uh, there's been a very rapid increase in uh, highly paid professional administrative staff. It's a major change in the universities. 
earlier years administration was just mainly a matter of uh, faculty members taking some time off for administrative duties, returning to the faculty. That's far less true today. I won't go into it. There's a very good study of it by a well-known sociologist, Benjamin Ginsberg. It's called The Fall of the Faculty, The Rise of the All-Administrative University and Why It Matters. It's worth reading. Uh, it, it, one of the things it does is impose on the universities a kind of a business model, what Lewis Powell was calling for. It has many consequences. Uh, one consequence is a drive towards what's called efficiency. Efficiency sounds nice, and it's supposed to be an economic concept, but it isn't an economic concept. It's an ideological concept. Uh, one way to increase what's called efficiency is to transfer costs to individuals. And in fact, you see it all the time. So suppose you call a bank, say, or an airline to check on an error or get some information or something. Uh, you all know what happens. You make a phone call, recorded message, says, we love you, hang on. <laughs> and uh, you hang on and music plays and every once in a while the recorded message returns. And maybe after a while uh, you get a menu which probably doesn't have what you're looking for. And if you're willing to hang on longer and you're lucky, you may get a human being. Uh, well, uh, uh, all of that is highly efficient for the business, saves them money, uh, but, and the costs for them are lower, so it's called efficiency. Uh, but it's very costly for you. You're wasting your time and energy, and that's multiplied over users, over the population. It can be quite a large cost. Uh, the, uh, but it's called efficiency. And there are many illustrations. So for example, uh, I'm going to go off to the airport after this and fly home. Now, the airports, the air airlines have increased efficiency in many ways. Uh, one of the ways they've increased efficiency is by not circulating air. Okay, saves, uh, saves some money, also spreads disease. Uh, but that's transferred to individuals. So under our ideological system, that's not counted. Anything that costs to individuals just don't count. It's only businesses that count. Uh, the same thing happens when the corporate culture is extended to universities. So one way to achieve efficiency is to replace faculty by cheap labor, by temps, just as is happening in the business world. So in universities, it's typically the most vulnerable. Uh, graduate students or adjuncts. They're easily replaceable, they're exploitable. Uh, you don't pay them much. It's hard for them to ask for their rights. So it's a perfect labor force, like temps in the general economy. And it's very good for the bottom line, for the, it's the concern of the professional business, business administrators, the trustees, uh, the state legislatures. Of course, there's a harm to students but that's individuals. So therefore, it's not counted in their ideological system. That's part of the ideological character of cost estimates deeply built into the economics profession and uh, general practice. And there are similar developments taking place in the schools, K to 12. Uh, the new spirit of the age that the masters are trying hard to inculcate, as they've been doing for centuries, 
is very hostile to public schools and also to Social Security and to other institutions uh, which are based on a very evil thought that you should care about other people. That's dangerous. Uh, so for example, I don't have kids in school, so why should I pay taxes so that the kids across the street can go to school? Or uh, why should I be taxed so that a disabled widow across town will have some food to eat? Uh, that's uh, uh, the new spirit of the age is opposed to that. It's also opposed to collective action, uh, to working together to achieve some kind of common good. Now, that's one reason for the worship of markets in official ideology, and let me stress ideology, not in practice. The wealthy do not tolerate market discipline for themselves. It's, a, it's an ideology which is a, useful for an attack on the vulnerable. So part of the mythology about markets uh, that's driven into your heads is that they increase choices. It's not really true. In fact, they restrict choices. So if I want to get home from work, let's say, the market does offer me a choice between two identical automobiles, one called a Ford and one called a Toyota. Uh, but it doesn't offer me a choice between a car and a public transportation system. That's not a choice that's available on the market. It's a much better choice. It's more efficient, stops lethal emissions, uh, no traffic jams. But that's not a choice on the market. Uh, and it extends quite widely. Uh, public transportation requires decisions in a democratic participatory society. And that's a major threat to the savagery of the new spirit of the age. And I think factors like this account for a good deal of the passion behind the effort to eliminate a highly effective, highly efficient programs like Social Security and also good schools uh, for, that serve communities. If you want to privatize something and destroy it, there's a standard method. Uh, first, you defund it so it doesn't work anymore. Then people don't like it. They get upset, except privatization. That's happening in the schools. They're defunded. Uh, they don't work very well. Furthermore, teachers are demonized, especially teachers' unions are demonized. And the independence and creativity of teachers is undercut. Uh, they have to be humiliated. That's a large part of the point of the teaching to test mania. So people, when it doesn't work, people accept some form of privatization just to get out of the mess. There's no improvement in education, probably generally makes it worse. That's usually the case with privatization. But it does help instill the new spirit of the age. Gain wealth, forgetting all but self. Now there's a background to this. It has to do with what education is supposed to be. It was a pretty lively issue during the Enlightenment. And they used some evocative imagery to contrast different approaches to education. So one image is education as being like a vessel into which you pour water, pour some kind of liquid. We, we all have plenty of experience with this. We know it's a pretty leaky vessel. So you can take an exam and some course you don't care about, study hard. 
get a good mark on the exam, a week later you forgot what the subject was. That's pouring water into a vessel, teaching to test. Uh, everyone's gone through this, who's gotten this far. And there's another image that education ought to be like what was called laying out a string along which the student can progress in his or her own way. Now that's education that fosters discovery, not memorizing. A structure's got to have a structure. It's designed so that gaining understanding, gathering information, is a creative activity, cooperation with others. That's the way advanced research works. Now that's the enlightenment ideal that derives from more general conceptions of human nature and uh, legitimate social relations. Well, pouring water into a vessel has a new name these days. It's called No Child Left Behind, or Race to the Top. Point is to kill interest, deaden the mind, disempower teachers, make students more passive and obedient, less trouble, keep them from reaching for our throats. New names for old passions. Uh, recently, the country's major science weekly, Science Magazine, ran a series of articles by the editor, it's a well-known biochemist, and it's worth reading. He uh, just runs through a lot of examples about the destruction of science education uh, through no child left behind type measures, K-12, and also similar programs in the universities. Gives a lot of illustrations, and he also outlined some concrete alternatives which are designed to instill the joy of discovery, foster creative capacity, cooperative effort. Uh, one program he mentions was uh, for kindergarten children. Uh, in this kindergarten class, each these are carried out. Each child is given a, a, a small dish with uh, pebbles, seeds, and shells in it. And the task is to figure out which one of the seeds. So it begins with what they call a scientific conference. Kids get together and try to figure out how to do this, try various things, goes on, exchange ideas. Finally, at the end, they figured out which ones are the seeds, some teacher guidance. Uh, at that point, each kid is given a magnifying glass and the seeds are cut open. They can see the they can discover the embryo that's inside that's getting the seed to grow, the source of energy. And well, the kids learn something. They learn more than just biology, and it'll stick. They learn something about discovery, about how to work creatively, to work cooperatively, and why it's fun and important to do so. That's what education should be about. And there are other programs like that. You know, one. It's designed for advanced students by an educational research group at MIT, also been carried out around the world. And there are a lot of examples. One of them, for example, begins by asking a question. How can a mosquito fly in the rain? Well, if you think about that, that's a tricky question. If you measure the force of a raindrop on a mosquito, it would crush a human being. Uh, so how does the mosquito manage to fly in the rain? Well, when you pursue it, you learn a lot about physics and about biology, and you even move into some uncharted territory, which is really make, making it interesting. And that uh, comes to understand the joy of discovery, the joy of working together. Well, that's, uh, there are many other such cases. 
And it can be done at every level, kindergarten up to advanced research. But it has a defect. It empowers teachers instead of humiliating them. It enriches the lives of students, uh, prepares them for creative, independent lives, not passive obedience, doesn't carry out the task of indoctrination of the young. Uh, there are alternatives. There are successful models in our own history uh, elsewhere. Uh, we should be able to progress well beyond them, but there's only one way, uh, the way that works for everything. Dedicated struggle, not passive acquiescence, uh, while all of this goes on before our eyes. Thanks. If anybody has questions, the two mics are here again. We can start on start on the left. What? Uh, could you comment on the growing trend in the sciences, particularly linguistics, towards funding and encouraging big data studies? And, and how we as students who are crippled by debt and need to find jobs can resist that, but also find work. I, I don't hear it too was, well, so uh, I'm going to have to translate. So talk about a trend in science with big data and linguistics. Big data. How do people resist that and still have a career? Well, the big data, you know, it's a very tempting uh, idea. You could look at technological journals. They have issues devoted to big data. And it's easy to collect a lot of data these days, like probably everything that's going on here is going right to a data bank in Utah where President Obama can read it if he wants. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, and everything that you send on email and everywhere else. So a lot of ways of collecting big data. Uh, also working with big data is pretty easy. Uh, doesn't take a lot of thought. I mean, you have to maybe get a statistician to help you, but uh, then it just, uh, you get a lot of stuff with, without much effort, without much thought. And that's tempting. The thinking is hard. Having ideas is hard. Uh, they often don't work. You know, you've got to pursue them and so on. So why not do something easy? Uh, and uh, so there's an ideology behind it. Uh, it. It can't be done in the, in serious, areas like you, you can't do it and I mean, sometimes a lot of data can help for something if you have a you have some some idea that you want to pursue you can often test it by looking at data but you have to know what you're looking for you know otherwise it's like uh, suppose somebody says uh, I want to become a biologist okay and you tell them it's easy uh, just go to the Harvard biology department they got a big library. It's all there. Okay, just become a biologist. Uh, yeah, that's uh, big data. 
You can't do anything unless you know what you're looking for. Know what you're looking for, you have to have some understanding, you have to have a framework and so on. Uh, but the, the move towards it, you can see the temptation. And in fact, if you're a grad student or a young researcher, you want to get an NSF grant, uh, that's the way to do it. You know, Put in a grant. In fact, it's very hard to get a grant these days unless you put in something completely irrelevant. <laughs> like I'm going to do a big study of collecting data or I'm going to use for linguistics uh, fMRI. Uh, not for anything purpose, but just so I can buy a big machine and you know, big machines are good. And so uh, uh, These are some of the pathologies of um, the research and funding. Got to get used to it. So I'm just doomed then. <laughs> Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was raised in Quebec, and I wanted to ask you what you thought were the roles, purposes, relevance of student unions, both at the undergraduate and GSTA, which means graduate student teaching assistant level. Well, uh, student unions have been, have actually there's one here, uh, which has been pretty successful, uh, and they're all over the, they're all over the world. I just take the Western Hemisphere, uh, from in Chile, there have been very uh, impressive student strikes going on for a couple of years now, against the. Uh, deadening residue of the dictatorship. The dictatorship is formally gone, but the impact of it remains in the educational system too. There's been very lively student protests, student unions. Uh, up in Canada, as I mentioned, Quebec protests were had a lot of impact, and it certainly can be done. Uh, I th I'm, you, you can tell me more than, uh, you can say a lot more than I can, but there is a, student graduate union here, which I understand has been pretty effective in maintaining uh, some rights for graduate student workers. So sure, I think it's, I mean, traditionally unions have been not only in the forefront of gaining and protecting workers' rights, but also in the forefront of democratizing the society. And I think that's one of the main reasons why there's such a relentless attack on unions, particularly in the United States. The U.S. has a very violent labor history, much worse than other industrial countries. It's a business-run society for a lot of reasons, and uh, there have been there there have been periods of very effective union organization. I mentioned one, the late 19th century, with the Knights of Labor and the Farmers Alliance. Uh, that was beaten back, uh, primarily by uh, Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare in the 1920s. Uh, the labor movement was almost destroyed, which is a great book on it by the leading labor historian in the United States, uh, David Montgomery, died recently. It's called something like uh, The Rise and Fall of American Labor. Uh, the fall that he's talking about is the 1920s, when the labor movement was so devastated that right-wing visitors from England and Australia were shocked by and wrote about the how uh, the state of American workers. Well, 1930s, it, 
revived and it revitalized the society. That's why you get the New Deal measures and uh, the, the effect that they had. And that can happen again in schools too, universities too. Thank you. So I am one of those overworked, underpaid grad students, <laughs> as many of us are. Do you see a solution to the disenfranchised grad student who basically our life is the whim of our grad program and we can lose our funding if we fail to do what they want us to do? She's an overworked grad student. She asked for a solution to a disenfranchised grad student who is afraid of losing their funding. Afraid of losing the funding. Well, that's what organization is about. Um, the only way to protect people, if people are alone, trying to face a powerful system by themselves, they don't have a chance. Uh, that's why uh, the, every union, its kind of main theme is solidarity. It may not be achieved, but at least that's what it's trying to achieve. If you work together, you can do things. If, you, if you're alone, you can't. Uh, working together is partly unions, but partly it's just the community attitudes. How does the community feel about it? Uh, that makes a big difference. So in Quebec, again, the, recently, the success of the student strike was not just that the students were organized. It was they were to get out into the community and develop community support, which did indeed overthrow the government. It was pretty strong. Same in... Uh, Mexico, the other side, other border. If the, if the students had only had a student strike, they would have been crushed. But they had uh, popular support. And students, it's not, it's not impossible for students to get popular support. And they have parents, they have friends, you know. There are a lot of people who are directly involved in the success of the uh, educational system. And remember, it helps everybody. Like, take the GI Bill again. Uh, not only sent a lot of young people to, it was limited, but sent a lot of young people to school, and it helped the society. That's part of the reason for the very high growth rate, and economic growth rate in the uh, 50s and 60s into the 70s. Uh, educated population uh, uh, increases the health of the society. So a lot of people gain from it. Thank you. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, I have two questions, and they are both related to tenure. <laughs> so part of the story of the increased casualization of labor in the academy is the decrease in tenure line positions. But of course, tenure itself is not a flawless system. So I would like to know your thoughts on the tenure system as it works in the US and the future of tenure. And paired with that, what tenure track faculty ought to be doing to combat the casualization of labor in general. She wants to know about uh, your thoughts about the tenure system and also what tenure track faculty should, should do to fight casualization. Well, the tenure system, uh, first of all, I think it should be extended to work people generally, they shouldn't be vulnerable to uh, uh, the decisions of more powerful to uh, control them by the threat of kicking them out. So tenure is a very good idea. Uh, the tenure system in the United States is under attack from 
many directions. It's, and it's a mixed story. Uh, so, for example, one of the sources of attack on the tenure system is very good legislation, uh, the anti-ageism legislation. Uh, if you think about it, the, uh, any faculty is going to have some people on it who've just decided, I'm not going to work anymore. You know, they don't want to do anything. Uh, they can become administrators. They used to become administrators or something or other. But, uh, uh, but they're going to be hanging around. It never was a big problem in the past because of tenure. Okay, so they'll stick around for a while, then they'll be gone. And remember, if they don't go, uh, you can't appoint a new person. So uh, with the anti-ageism restrictions, it's only after someone leaves that you have a track for a younger person. And if they hang on indefinitely, you've got a problem. I suspect that that alone is going to undermine tenure just by the dynamics of it. And it's also under attack by those who want uh, uh, employees and faculty or employees to be more vulnerable. Uh, but it's, I think we just have to think more seriously about ways of preserving uh, protection for uh, teachers uh, uh, and others uh, in, in more novel and creative ways. But the system, the basic idea of it is a good system. It also uh, did protect academic freedom, not completely by any means, plenty of rotten cases, but it offered some protection for academic freedom. And if it's lost, that protection will be lost. Thank you. So prior to the large-scale corporatization of the university, say in the 1960s, the effect of the university system was still largely conservative on the society. You wrote about it yourself. How do we move beyond that status quo uh, when we're fighting back the corporatization of the universities today? Well, I think we should be cautious about the phrase conservative uh, attack on society. It's across the board, it's across the spectrum. Now, that's why I quoted from the liberal side of the spectrum. Now, they're attacking it too. Maybe not as extremely often, but not very differently. Uh, the neoliberal assault, uh, including the assault on education, comes across the spectrum. It was the people on the liberal left side who were objecting to the failure of the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young, right? They want better indoctrination. Uh, the K-12 programs that are undermining uh, the autonomy and creativity and independence of teachers and uh, forcing students into a mold, you know, that's uh, coming from liberals. So yes, there's an attack. And it's much broader than the educational system. That's why I tried to bring in these other things. And it requires a change in the society. Change in the universities can be part of it. It can be a galvanizing effect, but it can also draw from it. There's an interaction. Um, thanks for coming, Professor. Um, I'd like to ask your thoughts on how similarly, similarly to um, corporations such as Walmart or McDonald's infiltrating foreign markets 
in different countries. Um, a new trend with universities going into different parts of the world and setting up satellite campuses there. Um, if that fits it within your scope of um, the corporatization of universities, especially in countries that don't really have a great track record in uh, freedom of speech um, or in areas that are very oppressive. Extending of university programs to other countries. Mm -hmm. Like following the Walmart. Following the Walmart. You're thinking of uh, setting up campuses in other countries or, or what's called MOOCs, you know, the uh, online education. Correct. Well, not necessarily online. Like I know, in, I believe New York University has a campus in Dubai. Um, some universities have campuses in China. Camp spreading campuses. Yes. Well, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's good to bring resources to as many people as possible, but it depends how it's done. Uh, if it's done in a way which actually leads to uh, independent development in those countries, then it's okay. It's like setting up clinics. So suppose you set up a clinic in, say, Haiti. I mean, it's good to have more uh, medical facilities in Haiti. But if it's going to be uh, doctors from Harvard Med School going to Haiti for a couple of weeks to do some surgery, it's okay, but it's not helping Haiti much. On the other hand, if it's uh, helping to develop a self-sustaining uh, health program in Haiti, it's doing a lot. And there are examples like that. Uh, Partners in Health, uh, Paul Farmer's group, which is a real case, set up uh, for 20, 30 years now, uh, ongoing rural clinics in Haiti, which train paramedics and nurses uh, who do most of the work, really. Most of the beneficial work is preventive medicine. Uh, you know, surgery's okay, but but it's not what really improves health. And uh, training the people who really do the work so they can take it over, by now their main clinic is mostly Haitian run. Uh, there are visitors who come in from, in this case, Harvard Med, occasionally just for special purposes or improving training or something, but it's essentially handed over to the uh, population which runs it themselves. And I think the same is true of uh, educational programs in other universities. If it offers the opportunities for them there to uh, gain the insight, the understanding, and the training so they can take off by themselves, then it can be very valuable. Thank you. Hello. Um, wanted to ask about what we mean by the word corporatization. Um, specifically, how do we reconcile the um, business-like shifts we see at least within the universities, with the fact that for the last 150 years, universities themselves have always been corporations in a legal sense. Sorry, I can. So you asked about how you reconcile the, the shift to uh, businesses, but the fact that universities have been incorporated as corporations for the last 50 years. Well, you know, the United States is a, it is a business-run society. And that means that there's a, an every domain. That's why we have such a rotten mass transportation system, for example. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous that you can take a high-speed train from Beijing to Kazakhstan, but not from Boston to New York, you know. Uh, and uh, that's one of many reflections of the fact that it's a business-run society. 
You don't do things cooperatively. Uh, you don't uh, uh, do things for the benefit of the community as a whole. Now, that's not totally true, but to a large extent true. In fact, in the United States, even the things that are hailed as contributions to the public good, if you look closely, that's not quite what they are. So one of the main examples that's given is uh, the interstate highway system in the 1950s. Well, it's true the interstate highway system allows you to drive from one place to another faster. I crossed the country myself in the 1950s before it was built on two-lane winding roads, you know, and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's easier on a highway. On the other hand, the point of the interstate highway system was quite different, and its impact was quite different. The point was to destroy the possibilities for decent survival as much as possible by maximizing the use of fossil fuels. The interstate highway system drove communication from efficient systems, like say trains, to which were undermined, to trucks, but uh, cars, that was uh, airplanes, you know, so a lot of money went into airports, into uh, highways. A lot of it was combined with a major social engineering pro project, probably the biggest one in history, uh, to destroy the inner cities and drive people into suburbs. Uh, that's, uh, you know, I don't have anything against suburbs. I live in one, I like it, and so on, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it, uh, from a human point of view, uh, it uh, again it maximizes the destructive power of the society, maximizes fossil fuel use, uh, purchasing commodities, uh, atomization, separation of people, uh, and uh, uh, undermines uh, community efforts and uh, uh, and things simply like mass transportation. Well, education is part of it. So yeah, there's been, uh, um, the United States achieved some important things in education, like mass public education. The general idea of mass public education was very constructive, and it was pioneered here. Uh, the same is true of land-grant colleges. It made a big difference in the country, and it was um, pioneering. It wasn't done in elsewhere until much later, much less effectively. So it's not entirely a negative story. But there are negative elements in it, like the corporatization. And you got to, it's a thing, it's part of American history. It's not, it has all sorts of, uh, American history has all kinds of things in it. it has a lot of uh, radical initiative uh, and achievement. And you can capitalize on that. It has regressive elements, which you have to struggle against. It's life. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Chomsky. It's a pleasure to have you here. We've uh, really appreciated hearing your, your, your words today. You mentioned in your speech the, uh, the fact that the current socio-political climate has impacted community colleges as well as four-year institutions. Uh, I am a, a full-time tenured instructor of English and the honors program at Henry Ford Community College. It's about half an hour east of here, and I can certainly attest to that. Um, recently, 
in the past 10 years that I, or so that I've been working there, we've had a really strong sense of shared governance at the institution, and administration and faculty have worked very cooperatively. In the past, the administration, uh, particularly the presidency, has come from within. We've hired former uh, faculty members to be in that position. Our most recent president was one of the first who came in a long time from without and pretty much driv uh, drove us into the ground. Uh, we now uh, were surprised and shocked to discover within this past year that we're running a huge deficit. If we're talking about the corporatization, we're talking about the financial aspect. Uh, well, while we've been trying, the union, uh, I, I'm a member of the AFT Local 1650, we've been trying to get financial information in the sense of non-disclosure and you know, free information for, for years, and that hasn't been forthcoming. We've recently heard that we were going to have a $2 million deficit, then a three, then a five. Now we've been told over the summer, when all the faculty are gone and un unable to participate in shared governance, it's actually a $16 million projected deficit for this fiscal year. This is largely the result of student financial aid fraud and some poor decisions on the part of the administration involving capital improvement projects that came directly from the student, the, the general fund, rather than being bonded. The way it's being presented, however, particularly in uh, the the board meetings is, of course, that it's these greedy faculty and their, their ridiculous salaries and benefits, even though that has long been factored in and is not the cause of this issue at all. What is uh, truly surprising and saddening to me is the way some of the local media have responded to it. Some of them haven't been aware of it at all, and I'm sure, as you were mentioning, you're, you're well aware of the fact that the media sometimes downplay or overlook these issues. But in the local media, it's been presented as a very anti-union, and it's the fault of the faculty. Coming, I'm sorry, I apologize for the long lead-up. My question is this. Given the, the, the connection between the socio-political and the economic issues in the institution and what you've spoken on uh, many other occasions, the impact of the media, how can we combat that? How can we fight that pervasive image that has been pounded into the, the, the public's head of the greedy faculty member? How can we try to turn the tide? How do we stem this? What, what proactive measures can we take to try to fight this and try to show that we are on the side of students and that it is not forces from within that are eroding the institution? How can one get the media to present? Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, there are only two ways. It's, it's pretty elementary. The one way is to construct alternative media, like, say, the labor press in the 19th century. And uh, it's, not, it's not impossible. I mean, the United States uh, it tends to be much more privatized than comparable countries. On the other hand, uh, the labor press uh, survived it was very lively in the 19th century. It survived into the 1950s. The 1950s, there were still uh, 800 labor newspapers reaching maybe 30 million people a week, and they were pretty radical. Now, they were attacking uh, what they called the bought priesthood of the major media and uh, struggling for um, social democratic um, improvements welfare state and others very pretty militantly. Uh, they, uh, even the, uh, uh, the commercial media uh, lasted for a long time with a good deal of variety. Uh, in England, for example, uh, if you go back to the 1960s, it's not that far ago, 
far back, the tabloids, which are now kind of totally ludicrous, were labor presses, militant labor presses. Now, people like John Pilger, for example, were writing in the Daily Mirror. And it was partially true here, too. You take the New York Post today, it's kind of grotesque. But in the 1940s, the Post was a kind of a left liberal journal. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the free and independent media, the more independent ones, uh, kind of collapsed under the two forces, both in England and the United States. Uh, one was capital concentration. So it just became impossible to compete unless you had massive capital, and we know where that comes from. And the other was advertising. Uh, adver uh, reliance on advertising almost automatically drives the media to the right for who advertises, and that's pressure. And under advertising pressure and uh, capital concentration, uh, independent commercial media tended to decline. And with the kind of general assault on the population, the real independent media also declined, like the labor press. But, you know, it can be reconstituted. So one approach is uh, just create your own media. Uh, the other approach is to try to influence the media that exists. And that can happen, too. Uh, so I, I've seen it happen. Uh, take, say, Boston, where I live, so I've been following it closely. You go back to the, there's a major newspaper, the Boston Globe. Uh, in the early 1960s, it was a very hawkish newspaper. Uh, I was very much involved in the anti-war movement in those days. And uh, just to give you an example, the, the first demonstration, public demonstration against the war on the Boston Common, you know, main place for demonstrations, was in October 1965. Uh, it was uh, broken up violently, mainly by students, uh, and the Boston Globe applauded the counter-demonstrators and condemned the people who were having pretty mild criticisms of the war. Now, that was October 1965. Now, five years later, the same newspaper was supporting draft resistors, and there was a reason for it. Some of the reasons, a lot of the reasons were just uh, the way the uh, people involved, including the journalists, were impacted by the activism of the 60s. By the 1980s, the Globe was practically the only paper in the country that was seriously reporting the uh, uh, Central American atrocities and the solidarity movements that were supporting them. By now, it reverted again. On, it's now well, became a subsidiary of the New York Times. It's now kind of a local newspaper that doesn't report much. But that can, the effect can be real. Uh, those are the only two ways. There aren't any other ways. We try to change the uh, kind of general complexion of the community so that the press reacts with it when that happens, or just create alternatives, which can be done. It's not hard these days. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, the new technologies that are around uh, do make it a lot easier to construct alternative media. So, for example, desktop publishing is much cheaper than old printing, way cheaper, and it makes it a lot easier to 
develop alternative media. And the same is true of electronic media, of course. So there are a lot of opportunities. And in fact, a lot of them aren't used. Uh, the activist movements should rethink their own activities this way. So for example, in, in the early 1970s, when cable television was coming around, uh, Congress passed legislation uh, which uh, granted to big corporations the right to have, uh, you know, use the public airwaves in, for their own benefit in particular regions and communities. But there was more to that legislation. Uh, this was still under the impact of the activism of the 60s. And uh, the cable legislations uh, required that if a big corporation gets access to a community, has to set up a public station. And all over the country, there are small uh, public cable facilities, uh, which aren't CBS, you know, but by the standards of, the, say, the third world, they're magnificent. The Cambridge Mass, for example, has a cable station, which can reach everyone in Cambridge. It's barely used. The cable facilities are barely used. A lot of people are complaining about the media correctly, but not using the opportunities they have. Like, for example, these public facilities. And there's a lot that can be done with that. So I don't think it's, I don't think we're out of options. They're never easy. But so there is hope for us beyond the tabloids. <laughs> Thank you. My question goes more toward your prefatory remarks, which I enjoyed very much. Uh, I was amazed when our president exhorted Americans to read or uh, reread this nation's Declaration of Independence. Uh, I, I, I was floored by that because there is language in it that I think uh, arguably uh, favors uh, a major restructuring of our government uh, in that it, it notes, of course, that human nature is to suffer as long as ills are deemed sufferable, but that when a long train of user patients and abuses uh, whose end is tyranny uh, are in place, that it becomes our duty to alter or abolish that government. I just wondered if you would contrast the situation faced by the writers of the Declaration of Independence with the government that we have today. I think it could be argued that uh, we are facing uh, that long train of usurpations and abuses that uh, makes it, that behooves us to alter or abolish our current government. The Declaration of Independence is a very mixed story. I mean, there's some nice lines in it, lines I like. There's some horrible stuff in it. Uh, people kind of intone it, but they don't read it. And you really should read it carefully. So for example, there's a, there's a, a series of condemnations of the British king, King George. Now, take a look at the condemnations. Uh, one of the things he's condemned for is, uh, by Thomas Jefferson, is that it's something like this. He unleashed against us the murderous Indian savages whose known way of warfare is, you know, torture, destruction, and so on. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was there. 
you know, he didn't have to read history books. He knew that it was the murderous English savages who were assaulting the population, driving them out, exterminating them. Uh, and uh, yes, there was a response from the people who were trying to defend themselves. He knew that. Uh, but that's in the Declaration of Independence, and we constantly repeat it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was also a slave owner. He said he didn't like slavery, but he had slaves. And uh, you may recall that he once, uh, how did he put it? He said, uh, I tremble for my country when I think that God is just and that someday we'll be subject to his justice. Uh, he was talking about the crimes that he was carrying out and that were carrying out around him. And it's been a big struggle to overcome some of those crimes. And uh, then there's uh, what I quoted from the Constitutional Convention, for example. Uh, that's another part of the story. Uh, it goes beyond that. Um, I'm sure you know, obviously you know, that uh, women were not, couldn't vote. Why? They weren't persons, literally. Uh, the uh, United States was an offshoot of England, so it took British common law over. British common law is uh, codified in Blackstone. You know, I mean, so read it. Women are property. They're not people. A, women, a woman is the property of her father and then her husband. In fact, one of the arguments against allowing women to vote was that it would be unfair to unmarried men because a married man would get two votes since obviously the property votes the way you know, the, the owner votes. And it took a long time to get rid of that. Uh, as late as 1975, it's not that far back, women did not have a legally guaranteed right to serve on federal juries because they weren't peers, they weren't persons, and still a residue of being property. Well, you know, it's half the population. And uh, there's quite a lot, you know. Uh, it was a kind of a free society, but for free, I mean, the Constitution talks about uh, a persons having rights, but person didn't mean human being. I mean, it obviously didn't mean Native Americans, they didn't have any rights didn't mean uh, slaves, no rights, didn't mean women. It didn't even mean poor whites. If you wanted to participate in the system, there's all kind of hurdles you had to cope, pass. That's why there were uh, rebellions, like Shays Rebellion, Whiskey Rebellion in the early years. So it's, I mean, it, there was progress, undoubtedly. It was also pretty awful. And in fact, it's worth remembering that one of the reasons for the American Revolution was uh, that this was a slave-owner-run slave society, and they could see what was happening in England. So in England around, I think, 1770, uh, there were, legislation was beginning, main major decision by Lord Mansfield, one of the main legislators, that slavery is so odious that it cannot be tolerated in England. Incidentally, it could be tolerated in the empire. So that lasted for another 70 years or so. But the slave owners here could see the writing on the wall. Uh, they could see that if the colonies remained subject to England, uh, pretty soon uh, it would become so odious here that they'd lose their property. And uh, they were the ones who ran the country. The country was largely in the hands of uh, slave owners for a long period. 
you know, the Southern uh, Virginia, you know, Southern gentleman who ran the place. That's another side of the story. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to uh, respect in what happened, but there's plenty to condemn. And in many ways, we've progressed way beyond it. Things that were considered perfectly normal and acceptable then would be totally intolerable today. And it took a long struggle to reach it. Very long, hard struggle. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We can take maybe one more question, and then I have to get Professor Chomsky to the airport. We'll leave promptly at 2.10. That's so I can get pneumonia. <laughs> Um, well, I'm, I might have misheard you earlier in your talk, but if I heard right, you said there are some interesting uh, developments or movements happening in Rust Belt cities, uh, cities that are reinventing themselves. Um, I wonder if you could talk more about what those are and what you find uh, interesting about them. What do you find interesting about developments in the Rust Belt cities? In the Rust Belt? Belt cities, yeah. um, well, mainly in the northern Ohio area, there's some very interesting things happening. It's spreading. Uh, if you go back to 1977, I think it was, the U.S. Steel, it was roughly around then, uh, U.S. Steel decided to close its main plants in uh, Youngstown. Youngstown was a steel town, you know. Uh, the workers and the union built the town, built the community, built the enterprise, and U.S. Steel got the profits. Uh, they, it's part of the whole uh, kind of export of production. Uh, uh, so they decided to close it. Well, the union got together and with the working people, they were well organized in a fairly active union. Uh, they uh, proposed that they would buy the plant and it would be worker-owned. Um, now, for the company's point of view, that probably would have been profitable. There are many cases like this around the country when workers have, have offered to, through the union to buy a plant that was being closed. And typically, if you just work out the numbers, it would probably be profitable for the owners. But they almost never do it, I think, for class consciousness reasons. They don't like the idea. It's opposed to the new spirit of the age. Anyhow, the company refused. It went to court. Uh, they had a good lawyer, Staunton Lind, labor activist lawyer, and they, uh, they pushed it through the courts. They lost in the courts. The workers lost in the courts. If there was enough, there was community support, but only in Youngstown, not much beyond. If there was broad community support, say, across the country, they could have won, uh, but they lost. However, they didn't give up. Uh, what happened is that uh, there was a spread of small enterprises, uh, worker-owned, which tried to, uh, very intelligently, tried to make use of the way the communities were developing. So Cleveland, for example, like a lot of cities, is lost its, most of its productive uh, industry. But it, and it's now, uh, the economy of Cleveland is largely based on public enterprises like universities and hospitals and so on. So the worker-owned enterprises moved into that domain, like uh, worker-owned uh, laundries and things like that, which are pretty substantial. And they've spread. By now, there's quite a lot of them. 
if you want details on it, there's good work on it by uh, Gar Alperovitz. He's written a couple of books about it. He's a very good social historian, also an activist and involved in these things. And it's happening elsewhere, too. It was just a case in Chicago a couple of weeks ago where a furniture factory, I forget the name of it, that had been closed a couple of years ago and the workers tried to buy it. And they were blocked. Of, um, they lost it. But then they just took it back. Uh, it's happening around Boston and other places. And these are important developments. Uh, there are lots of ways in which uh, the working people can get greater control of the enterprises in which they're engaged. Uh, there's some legal op options, like what are called ESOPs, uh, which allow uh, uh, various ways in which uh, people in an enterprise can take partial control over it, can extend it. And these can be exploited. And if they're pursued far enough, they can mean a real substantial change in the economy. There was a big, huge case just a couple of years ago uh, which unfortunately failed because of lack of support. Uh, th th you recall, a couple of years ago, the U.S. government basically nationalized the auto industry. Not all of it, but just took, a, took over the auto industry. Uh, it's, uh, it was in government hands, substantially. Well, there were a couple of possibilities at that point. One, the one that was taken, was to use public funds to reconstitute it and hand it back to the owners. Not the same people, but people like them. You know, so essentially reconstruct it and put it back where it was. Another possibility would have been to hand it over to the workforce and the communities and turn the auto industry to what it really ought to be doing, uh, creating mass transit, like high-speed rails and public transit and things that not only the country needs, but the world needs. Uh, That'd be, that would have been good for everyone, including the workforce, but there was just no support for it. You know, the initiative was never, it was mentioned, but it was never pushed. If there had been, say, a substantial Occupy movement at the time, you know, it was, it was significant, but if it had been there and much bigger, it could have happened. And then you'd have a major industry. Uh, under worker control, worker ownership at least, maybe worker control. And there are other initiatives going on. Uh, right now, U.S. Steel is engaged in some kind of an initiative, I don't know how far it's gone, in connection with uh, Mondragon. Mondragon's the huge worker-owned conglomerate in the Basque country, the big conglomerate, the industry, uh, banks, and housing, schools, hospitals, and quite successful worker-owned. Not worker-managed, but worker-owned. And they're kind of involved in some sort of a arrangement with them to try to expand, extend Mondragon-style structures inside the United States. I think these developments could be very promising. Uh, the most, uh, uh, the best literature I know of it is Garl Perovitz's book, but there's a lot going on. And it's a lot of ways of, for other things to go on along the same lines. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do you want to hang out up here for a few more minutes until we have to go? Sure. Are we okay? Are we okay in time?
Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it too quick. If anybody wants to say hello, come on up. <laughs>